Hello, welcome to Tell Me About Your Mother. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today's episode features an author that you've probably heard of, especially lately, Rebecca Traster. She has a new book out called Good and Mad that focuses on women's anger or women's rage and how it's been a catalyst over the years for political action and big social change. So pretty timely, timely book there. Um, She also writes for The Cut at New York Magazine. Um, She's written for the New York Times a bunch, New York Times Magazine. She was the journalist who probably wrote the most and had the most access to Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. I feel like she writes a sort of groundbreaking essay almost every week at this point. She's pretty great. You should check her out if you haven't heard of her, and you should definitely check out her book. Again, that's Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. We talked a little bit about women's rage, but in the context of Rebecca's mom and whether or not she ever got real mad. Rebecca says, no, not really. And you'll hear a little bit more about that in this episode, along with some other really interesting things that sort of shaped Rebecca and her take on things. Here it is. This episode of Tell Me About Your Mother is sponsored in part by Care Of. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. I had not been in the habit of taking vitamins, so this was a pretty cool thing for me. It starts with this kind of fun online quiz that asks you about diet, health goals, lifestyle choices. It takes about five minutes, and they tell you what kinds of vitamins and supplements you might need. Apparently, 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. That's pretty crazy. Kerov's quiz is good at finding the one that you're short on and getting you back on track. For me, it's kind of always iron. I'm always a little bit anemic. So that was in my pack, but also uh, a B vitamin. And they also have these little packets that are called quick sticks. They're little powders and they give you a little extra boost. I got the immunity boost one and an energy boost one. And I swear the immunity boost one kept me from getting sick. It was great. And the energy boost is great for kind of late afternoon when I really want a cup of coffee, but I know it's a bad idea. (laughs) So yeah. Um, highly recommend it. Kind of takes the time and guesswork out of the vitamin game. It gets delivered right to your door in personalized, easy to remember daily packs. So you don't have to remember to, you know, what to take and how many, which is great. A portion of every sale goes toward the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins, which is pretty cool. If you would like to try it out for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and use the promo code TELLME. Again, that's takecareof.com. And as you're checking out, you'll use the promo code TELLME to get 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Okay, on with the show. My mom's such a fascinating figure because I got so many messages about what women are from my mom. And I think that the chief one is that she worked like this was, and she loved her job. And, um, and it was, it wasn't, my mom hadn't been politicized by the feminist movement. She had been to the degree she'd grown up in a 
in a Republican household in northern Maine on a potato farm um, and had then gone to college and where she met my dad, who was like a Jew with socialist roots from the Bronx. Um, and it, this was in the early 60s. And to the degree that she was politicized, I think in, by a social movement, it was the civil rights movement. Um, she graduated from college in 1965, but she was extremely brilliant. Um, I think she had not been taught as a child that that, you know, she was super smart, but had not necessarily been encouraged um, socially uh, to think that that was going to produce a career just because it wasn't, you know, it, it's interesting because her mother had in fact been a biologist in an era when that was, but she then stayed home to raise children and had only gone back to work after my mom, after her youngest was sort of back in school. So, but my mom went on to get a PhD in English literature at an Ivy League school coming out of college in Maine. She was also married like two days after she graduated. So she was married when she went to graduate school. And in quite a traditionally, the, the domestic work in my parents' marriage has always been extremely traditionally distributed. So my mom went on to get a PhD when it was in an era when it was still very rare for a woman to be getting. And the, the difference I write in my new book between my mom and her sister, who's just five years younger, but went into the same field and also got a PhD from the same institution. The difference of five years in the late 60s to the early 70s was massive in terms of how many women were in classes, the kinds of laws about hiring discrimination. So when my mom got out of graduate school, she tells stories about you know, we are not hiring women for this position. We already have a woman in the department. We don't need another one. We're not going to hire a woman, but we thought you might need the practice so you can come to this interview, right? And that is, I can't remember, 65, she's pro it was probably 68 or 69 yeah. um, when she was on the job market. But she went on to have a, a long career as an English professor at Lehigh University. She was one of the first four women hired by Lehigh University's English department. And uh, her career was just absolutely shaped who she was. The reason I said she wasn't politicized by the women's movement is because she didn't talk about it in feminist terms. I had peers whose moms were more directly politicized by the second wave who were who were constantly telling their daughters in very direct ways like this is important, this is who I am and this is, you know, you should My mom never quite indoctrinated me in that way. She never she just lived a life where her work was central to who she was. At the same time, she also lived a life where her work was central to who she was, and she did all of the cooking and cleaning and childcare in our house. I was very close to my father, too. I, I still am. But he had a very traditionally male role within the house. And so both things were true as far as my impressions of what what it meant to be a woman. There was a naturalness about the fact that work and, and passions outside of domestic passions and commitments could very easily, would obviously be integrated into my life. Um, at the same time, I, what I saw was a, a mother who did all kinds of domestic work. And I think to some degree, I reared back against that. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I couldn't imagine that being a reality for myself. So there was a part that I was drawn to and a part that I reared back from. While it wasn't something she particularly wanted, Rebecca says the setup in her parents' marriage didn't really influence her decision to remain single well into her 30s, at least not in any obvious sort of way. I didn't like meet anybody I wanted to date. One of the weird things was, I don't know, and I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, 
uh, psychoanalysts might be able to make connections between my sort of, it wasn't exactly a lack of interest in dating, but it was a lack of interest in men. I wasn't boy crazy as a kid. Like I wasn't when my peers, and this is, I was born in 1975. So we're talking about like when my peers were hanging pictures of like Michael J. Fox and Kirk Cameron or whatever yeah. on the wall, like I thought that just, it's not even that I thought it was ridiculous. I, part of me probably wished that I had those same impulses. Yeah. I just didn't. I didn't I didn't have wild crushes on boys. I mean, sometimes I would talk as if I did sort of to fit in, like, oh yeah, I'd sort of pick out one who seemed harmless enough and sort of say to my friends, like, yo, no, no, totally that guy. But like yeah. that was just because I felt weird. And it wasn't I didn't have any super amounts of anxiety about it either. It's hard for me to really remember. Maybe I was completely anxiety riddled about my own sort of my difference, I think, from many of my peers. I just didn't I wasn't I wasn't driven toward coupled them at all, which yeah. is great because no one was driven toward me coupled them wise either. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I certainly didn't have any boyfriend throughout high school, um, didn't have any throughout college. Now in college, mm -hmm. there were two very serious crushes that I developed on people that I knew. And one in you know, my senior year, I really had like a terrible, horrible, unrequited um crush on someone who is not interested in having a relationship with me. We were mm -hmm. very good friends. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, by college, you know, there I certainly had fixed my affection on certain kinds of guys. And the earliest guys that I dated, and I didn't date many guys at all, yeah. or maybe even the earliest guys that I fixated on, I think they were of a different generation and different people, but I think had some of the, um, they weren't caretakers of me in any way. Yeah. They were men who I would care take, take mm -hmm. care of, mm -hmm. you know. So in that way, I guess it's sort of my earliest, um, you know, expressions of desire for, for men um, mimicked something about my parents' marriage. But then mostly I was single, like through my 20s and into my early 30s. Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I didn't like anybody enough to date them. And I didn't, and in fact, the relationship that I'd had in my 20s had, um, while I was like deeply infatuated with this guy and we had a, we had a large social circle and everything, it was an on and off again relationship. It didn't make me happy. Mm -hmm. And I certainly was unhappy in, in the wake of breaking up with him. And then I got so happy because like my life got better and, um, I didn't want to risk becoming unhappy again. And so I really sort of stayed away from relationships until I met my husband who was completely unlike really any guy I'd ever met before. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly unlike any guy I'd ever dated. Yeah. And my husband is quite a bit like my mother. <laughs> um, and I mean that in all the best ways. He is a wonderful, he's like, he's a remarkably, he has, he, he also has work that's crucial to him and his life and is just so integrated into who he is. He's a public defender. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's his passion and his drive and his, his pleasure and, um, that he deeply believes in and cares about. And mm -hmm. it's so much of an animating force with him. He is also an unbelievably generous um, caretaker and nurturer and um, kind. He reminds me of my mom in a lot of ways. Yeah. Although she may not have called herself a feminist back in the 70s, Rebecca's mom mostly lived according to feminist ideals. And as they've both grown older and begun talking politics more and more, especially with Rebecca's job being what it is, her mom's feminism has become more obvious. I mean, here's the thing about my mom is she didn't talk 
explicitly about the feminist underpinnings of how she lived her life, mm -hmm. but she was also never apologetic about it either. It's more with my mom of just living that way. Um, and I do think that there have been shifts in terms of what she, she demands more from my father, certainly now than when we were little. But mm -hmm. I also think that that's, that may be a product of a changed consciousness. It may be a product, I think, I think my work and my brother's work, my brother for a time was also a journalist and he wrote about feminism. He's a stay at home yeah. dad. Yeah. Um, I think my brother, the way that my brother and I have lived our lives um, and we're all very close and we spend a lot of time together has also shifted some of the attitudes in my, you know, in my, my parents are still together. They're very happily together. They have a, I mean, they have a, a very loving, close relationship. They, you know, go to see concerts and they go to museums and they travel around the world together. Like they're, they're incredibly close. And I think they have a tremendously rewarding relationship. Mm -hmm. The domestic burdens are so unequal that it's not one that in that regard I would you know that I would want to replicate or that my brother and and his wife have replicated and I think that there is something about the um differences um in how my brother and I live and how we take care of our family that have made an impression and altered the dynamics of my parents' marriage mm -hmm. but I also don't know if that's a shift in my mom's consciousness I think my mom's consciousness is always I think has always been there. She knows all this stuff. It's just, yeah. there were certain choices that she was willing to make because she found her marriage very rewarding and, and was happy to, to be in it under certain circumstances. And I think she's, I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't, I feel slightly awkward speaking for her on this account, <laughs> but I don't know that my mom has changed radically. I think in part, my dad has changed some. And, um, and I think that the terms like it's harder to, when you have little kids, I mean, I find this in my marriage, though, that the challenges are different because our, the way that we divide the labor and the responsibility is very different from how my parents did. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, it's incredibly hard to manage these things when you have little kids and, and jobs. And so a lot of the period during which these impressions were being made on me was a period in which both of my parents, I think, were under tremendous stress, mm -hmm. um, logistical stress, raising children, money. So it's sort of hard. I guess what I'm saying is, it's hard for me to understand, of course, we've all changed and we've all shifted. Yeah. You know, my mother is watching my mother or as an adult talking to my mother more about politics, for example, mm -hmm. elections. And I love it when I hear her get angry about this stuff. But I think she's always been that way. It's just I talk to her on different terms now about this stuff. And the nature of our relationship is different now because I'm also an adult. While Rebecca has a more even distribution of household and childcare labor between herself and her husband, she has the modern burden of being always available to work in some way. Her take is that there's no better or worse between this generation of women and the previous generation in terms of balancing work and kids. It's just different struggles. I do almost nothing in opposition to how my mother was a mother. Yeah. Because I have to say that except for the, except for the fact that the distribution of labor and responsibility within her marriage is one that I would not want to replicate. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everything else about how she mothered me, um, I would love to be able to give to my kids because there is no, and I don't, I, I, I you know, I have a partner who does probably <laughs> over 50%. I mean, I don't know. I think it's pretty even. We just, I, and, and my mom didn't, she had a loving husband and we loved him and he was a wonderful father, but like, it wasn't an equal distribu distribution. There was, it, you know, she had to do all of her work 
in addition to all of the domestic work. And I think that was much harder. I think that, um, you know, it was harder because the assumptions about what she was supposed to be doing were different. Like there's, I feel in, in the community in which I live and in the, well, in the, you know, my sort of social circles and the, I feel entirely supported having a robust career and devoting a lot of time to my work. I think that the kinds of, um, my mother was one of the first four women in her English department. And I think that she did her work in eras where all kinds of things from pay inequity, um, harassment, all this stuff still exists in many workplaces, but there weren't as many sort of legal or social tools to combat against them. I think that's much harder. Mm -hmm. I think what's harder now is technology shifting and the kinds of demands of work expanding. One thing I do remember about my parents, and I think, and she worked exceedingly hard, um, but there were just different, you couldn't be reached all the time. Like if we went away, nobody was calling her right. to say, to you know, to ask her to do work. There wasn't email she was checking all the time. Like that, I think there were periods where she was just what we would now call offline. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it meant you were away from the house and not near a phone. You didn't have a commute, right? Like, so you were at the park. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that that, that is an area where it might is harder now yeah. because there's a 24-hour-a-day sense of I have work commitments and I need to be responding to people even as I'm with my, with my kids. Yeah. Um, Yes, which I just got a text from my babysitter. Everything's good. So, <laughs> Rebecca's been spending a lot of time lately thinking and talking and writing about women in rage. So I asked her what she learned from her mom on that account. Well, she did not have a bad temper. She was, um, she, but it was cutting when she was mad at us. But it wasn't, but she was so always so, my mom is truly the warmest and most nurturing person I, I have ever known. Um, there's nothing safer in the world than my mom. And she, um, but when she was mad, I felt horrible inside. My father had a loud and big temper, which I inherited. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, I hated when my dad yelled at me, but it was more common and less cutting in a, in a funny way. I was used to it. When, when my mom was mad at me, it felt awful inside in a different kind of way. Like mm -hmm. she was disappointed in me, which is like much worse. Yeah. But, um, but I did from an early age, everybody said, oh, you have your father's temper, you have your father's temper. And, um, and I felt like that wasn't a good thing to have. Like I wasn't supposed to have that temper. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when we grew up, I think I was always told that I was just like my dad, mm -hmm. um, anxious, quick tempered and that my, and, and sort of high strung and that my brother was so much like my mom easygoing, warm, nurturing, and those things. And like, there's a way in which that stuff gets stuck in you. Like, oh yeah, well, I'm just that model of human, yeah. right? And one of the things that's been interesting as we've gotten older, I think those traits are still present. I do have a bad temper. I am anxious and high strung and type A and all those things. Mm -hmm. But I see so much more of my mom in me now. I feel so much more of my mom than I ever did. I see so much of my dad and my brother. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, that's been... Rebecca says she always knew she wanted to have a family. She wasn't clear for a long time on what that would look like. I really did want to have kids. I'm very close to my parents. I'm, I'm argue with them. I'm critical of them. <laughs> but like, we have a very close relationship and we remain close throughout my adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, this sounds like, I, I don't know, I feel like I loved being a part of my family and I wanted to have a family like I I and so for years I was single 
and didn't think because I didn't often meet people that I wanted to date. (laughs) I didn't have terrifically high expectations for um, meeting someone and having, you know, certainly by the time that I was going to need to have kids. And I also had fibroids, which meant I had to have surgery. It's just like, you know, I had sort of a window on my, that I was aware of from the time I was in my Mm -hmm. twenties on my reproductive life. And I, when I turned 30, I decided that I would, if I, you know, I had a time, I made a timeline and like a savings account and stuff for like, I, cause I really wanted to have children mm-hmm. or a child. I was, you know, it's awesome that you were so, prepared. well, it's, but it's only because I had fibroids. I think I would never have thought this way if I didn't have doctors saying to me, you're going to have to have an operation after that operation. You're going to have a window of two years before theoretically they're going to start to grow back aggressively during which you will, you can try to get pregnant. Yeah. So because I'd had those conversations from the time I was in my twenties, like, I think if I hadn't had doctors sort of I was constantly thinking about this and I'm going to have to make a plan, right? That encouraged, and also because I wasn't in and out of relationships. There wasn't that thing that many of my, my peers, um, experienced, which was, well, you know, there's always another, I didn't, I just didn't have boyfriends. I had one boyfriend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have partnerships. I didn't meet people easily. I didn't fall in love easily. Um, so I didn't have the expectation that this was going to come easily, that partnership right. that would, that would, you know, make the more traditional familial model work yeah. was going to be something that happened. So that's why I started thinking about it at 30. And so that, I mean, to, yes, that in that respect, I was, it wasn't that I fantasized sort of like, oh, I can't wait to have babies. Like it was always <laughs> like, I knew it was going to be really hard. Yeah. I knew it was going to be hard. And was sort of ambivalent about it at the same time that I felt like this is something I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to try to figure out how to make it work. And when I was single, the way I thought I would make it work was I'm going to save money. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to have a kid on my own. But I also am aware that in speaking about that, it's like I didn't ever have to do that. So I don't know whether I would have gone through with it. I don't know whether it would have worked. I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware that. I'm describing only what I imagined might happen. And I actually wound up meeting my husband when I was 33. Yeah. Um, and having my first baby uh, at 35. I ask everyone who comes on this show to tell me about the time when they first realized that their mom was a real human person, distinct from them and from the role of mother. And I could so see myself in Rebecca's story about her mom. I remember a time that... The, the first memory that I have is a time realizing that my mom was deeply annoyed by me in like a way that wasn't about, <laughs> I remember exactly what it was. Yeah. It was coming back from the dentist. God knows how old I was. I was obsessed with Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. I might've been nine. I might've been eight. I might've been 10. I don't know. It was in that general, whenever Whitney Houston was like, I want to dance with somebody. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I had been in the dentist's office and I'd been reading a people magazine profile of Whitney Houston. And I was full of facts about Whitney Houston. And I was, we were coming <laughs> back from the dentist. And I was just reeling off facts about Whitney Houston to my mother, probably for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And at some point she said something that was like, Rebecca, you have to stop saying that I'm so bored you have to stop this conversation. And it was the most like, I, so in a funny way that is, that was me realizing that she was like, that her function was not just to listen to like the people magazine trivia that I just heard about my favorite current celebrity, <laughs> but that um, like she was a person who was probably trying to think her own thoughts 
while driving her kid home from the dentist yeah. and that she just sort of, it just came out of her mouth. Like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> um, That's such a relatable feeling. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I have two chatty. I have a six year old and a four year old where I'm oh, like, geez. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was a moment where I really felt like, in retrospect, I wonder, I mean, she, I'm sure she didn't regret it. There was no pain. I wasn't, like, devastated. It was just kind of like a little, like, oh, oh, um, huh. <laughs> oh, she's, she thinks I'm boring. <laughs> Might be boring. Hadn't really occurred to me. I just thought she was supposed to listen to what I was saying with rapt interest. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I don't, but it wasn't, I wasn't scarred by it. It was just like, it really sticks with me as a moment where I was like, okay, all right. Um, interesting perspective on myself. <laughs> That's it for this time. I hope you enjoyed hearing a bit about Rebecca and her mom. You can read her essays regularly at The Cut and buy her new book, Good and Mad, everywhere books are sold. Also, a couple things before you go. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please take a minute and drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening. Those things really help. And if you're looking for another show that explores various aspects of being a woman in America, I highly recommend checking out Fury, also on the Critical Frequency Network. It's a show that ties in nicely with a lot of the things Rebecca explores in her book. It's hosted by Amy Roost, whose work you may have also heard on Snap Judgment. Give it a listen. We'll be back next week, so see you then. Thanks. Tell Me About Your Mother is part of the Critical Frequency Network. It's produced by me, Amy Westervelt, and our music is by B. Beeman. Original illustrations for each episode are drawn by James Guthman. 